Christians are supposed to be Christ-like, just as the name implied from when it was originally used in the first century, right up to our own postmodern world today. It's as simple as WWJD, right? Wrong. Join our show host, teacher, servant leader, and fellow traveler as we journey together in learning how lives daily renewed by God's grace and power can embrace Christian living that counts and makes a difference in a broken world. Greetings for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled For Your Quiet Meditation, Devotional Reflections. And joining me from West Virginia is retired pastor and minister William Flewelding. Welcome to the program, sir. Thank you. Pleasure visiting with visiting with you, and in you know in in uh, visiting with you a little earlier, I discovered that you have written almost five hundred and fifty or five hundred and sixty pages of devotional material. Share with my listeners how this got started. What was the uh, the reason this book got written? It's, well, the 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 book actually samples approximately five years worth of uh, quiet meditations. I started writing these things back in 1981. Uh, the, the meditations come numbered. They, that just was a matter of indexing. And uh, I'm in the, currently in the 1900 range of uh, meditations. It, you do it long enough, the numbers get big. Oh, wow. But... Uh, Someone had suggested, had mentioned that a friend had mentioned a pastor of theirs had done something like this. Just exactly what they did, I don't know. Um, but uh, my friend found it uh, found it helpful. And I was walking. I was fairly new in the congregation I was serving, and I was walking through, the, and people were reading this stuff, which I considered junk, on the back of the bulletins before church. Mm-hmm. And I said, I can do better than that. And so I set out to do it. And April 14th, uh, which was Palm Sunday that year, 1981, I started writing these things. And I stuck one in the bulletin, well, as long as I was in, in active ministry. And I found them useful to me personally, so I kept writing them. Now, are they are they stories that reflect a uh, maybe a scriptural reference, or are they strictly the- theological in, in their intent and, and style? I reflect upon them. I try to make them meditative in style. They're not really stories or anecdotes. Uh, I read those sometimes, and I, I personally, I just sort of get lost in them. Right. Uh, I try to reflect upon what this what this verse and its immediate environment is trying to to tell us. Do you do some reflective research as well? I mean, do you go into concordances and other you know materials to expand upon the the scripture that you're referencing, or is it all just personal reflection? It's it's all well. It's kind of hard to answer that directly. Um, it's personal reflection, but given the fact that I over the long before these things started being collected and the the book starts in November of 2009, or 2009, and, um, and long before, even before I started writing them, I start, was asked to do Bible studies, and I wrote Bible studies. And mm. my style of Bible study is I take take a book I don't know anything about, 
and proceeded pericope by pericope, uh, little section by section, going through the through the book, uh, analyzing it, doing the concordance work. I developed a facility, like my professor called it, that is, given the text some some grammatical aids and some lexicons and some concordances and other such helps. I can figure out what's going on in the Greek and in the Hebrew. The the style that you have completed in this book, is it something that the layperson or person with a a church background will will gravitate to and uh, and be easily uh inspired by, do you think, your writing style? Um anecdote. I moved to from Port Indiana where I started these things in nineteen eighty one and nineteen ninety I moved to Atomo, Iowa. And I started there, and I started sticking them in my bulletins. Uh, about a year or so later, I called on this lady in the hospital. Peg Kelly was her name. Peg said to me, she says, you know those things you stick in the bulletins? And mm-hmm. I said, yeah. Uh, she says, I like those. And what she did was she took them, and she would, she took the one, the first one. She happened to be there the first Sunday I was there. She was not an every Sunday person, but a frequent, frequent flyer. And she would. She said, "I use it for my daily devotions every week, every day." Wow! And then the next week there was another one, and I alternated them. So about, I'm, my guess is, by the time I saw her in the hospital and she's talking to me about this, there had been, she had about thirty of them. And what she would have done was she would have put the new one on the bottom, and and then shuffle them through, and she used them daily for her devotions. So that is also something that you would uh, recommend in the study of your book or the reading of your book. It 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 is it is the way that some people have found useful to them. I have another friend uh, who has a much larger collection of them, and uh, ten or twelve years worth of them, and uses them the same way, and has commented to me uh, email contact uh, that she is. Uh, in such and such a season, <laughs> right then. Right. Uh, um, my observation when, when I was in Iowa was that about half of the congregation showed up, looked like they were perusing them. Wonderful. The uh, style of your book, then, I'm I'm assuming from what you've described. If I were a Bible teacher or a pastor, I could either use your material directly or use it as a launching pad for maybe study or getting a, a deeper understanding of Scripture. That could be done. Uh, if I were if I were a pastor, I I have spent my my retirement time in the last few years mining my my files. Yes. And some of those Bible studies that I have done back years ago, I have revisited, uh, created electronic copies of them, and indeed have them printed. There's uh, three volumes of them on Romans, Hebrews, and ones from the Catholic epistles. That's First and Second, First Peter. James, First Peter, First, Second, and Third John were the ones that I actually did, uh, but they are they are strong exegetical stuff. I found that I could not expect lay people to produce what I did, but I found that they were quite able to 
follow what I did. And uh, oh, it was years later. My daughter was then working for an agency of our church, a Christian Church Disciples of Christ, and uh, and it was she, she was in an office on new church starts, and she had contact with the with my first church out of seminary. Back, I was there in the set late seventies, and uh, and she she told the pastor she, she knew the church because she was there as a small child, and uh, he said, "Oh, in his comment." Her, her relaying to me his comment hmm. was, "Oh, we were just talking about your father a few a few, week, a few days ago. Someone brought up about the Bible studies that we did when he was here." Wow. That's so a... and this would have been probably about two thousand three, four, five, and I was moved there in seventy six, moved out in eighty one. So you know, it's been thirty odd years. And you've established a legacy then from your style and your your input into the congregations and the the communities. Is there what is the one thing you want people to take away from this work uh, for your quiet meditation? What is the one thing you hope they will uh, glean from your studies and from your your sharing this meditation material? I one of my parishioners in Atumwa, named Skip Smith made the comment to me that she had fallen in love with God. And I, and I, I mentioned her because she just stated it so, so beautifully. Uh, I would hope that people would do that, or at least begin to do that. Uh, it, is a, it is a devotional stuff, and devotional stuff is, is designed and aimed and intended to help people settle quietly into uh, into an awareness of the presence of God. Were there any challenges? Uh, you mentioned you've been you know, putting this material together for a number of years. Uh, did you have any difficulty in finding it? I, I know in my, uh, my own personal world, I would have a very difficult time. My assumption from visiting with you is that you're a little better organized, perhaps. How did that come together? I'm not sure what you're asking me. Well, were there challenges in uh, getting the material together? Did you find everything easily, or or was it a difficult task in getting it to the printer? Oh, in getting it to the printer? No, I have I have a file box over there, and if I wanted to, I could go back to 1981, and they're all there in hard copy. Phenomenal. Uh, what happened with this was I do it up every week, and I was on this computer, and I, for reasons I have no memory of, I just sort of kept collecting the old ones in order. And so it was a matter of uh, going over it. And once I decided to do it and then get the, uh, the frills around it, I don't think I bothered with the table of contents on this one. Um, and it doesn't have an index. Hmm. Just a discovery process. Uh, and, and But it was just, they evolved. Beautifully. Um, and I, I stuck a forward on it, and then I started with, the first one listed was for 1st November 2009, and it was number 1554. Wow. Which meant that there were... 1,553 of these things that were written 
typed up, distributed beforehand. It sounds like you have a, a library full of personal content that you could share in an additional book. Is there a follow-up to this book on meditation? When I finished this book on meditations, I simply created a new file which says a second collection of quiet meditations or something close to that. And uh, and I and this one runs through uh, 2014, and the next one starts on 2015, and I'm now starting my third year of collection on it. And I figure I get about five years' worth. It's about 250 or so meditations. I do one every Sunday, and I do one for Ash Wednesday and Monday, Thursday. That's the Thursday of Holy Week. Incredible. Well, thank you for sharing your story with us and also telling us about the background of this book, your book titled For Your Quiet Meditation, Devotional Reflections. My author guest, uh, William Flewilling. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. Where can my listeners get a copy of your book? If the place else is listed on Amazon, along with 38 other books I've mined out of my history. Incredible. They can do a search under your name, and let me spell that for them. It's F-L-E-W-E-L-L-I-N-G, first name William, William Flewilling. And they can find uh, not only this book, but uh, the other books in your collection of, uh, of wonderful uh, authorship. Thank you for joining me today, sir. You're welcome. Thank for, you. For Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Stay with us for more Christian Living That Counts, back in a moment. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. The National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute defines high cholesterol as a condition in which you have too much cholesterol in your blood. By itself, the condition usually has no signs or symptoms. People who have high blood cholesterol have a greater chance of getting coronary artery disease. According to the American Heart Association, more than 120 million Americans over the age of 20 have cholesterol counts that are above a healthy level. Harvard Medical School says that the good news is that cholesterol levels can be controlled, and just by lowering your total cholesterol 10%, you can decrease your heart attack risk by 20 to 30%. Making changes in your eating is important, but including daily exercise is a must. For the Fitness Minute, I'm Annette Hammond. Visit our Facebook fan page at Fitness Minute with Annette Hammond. Returning with more of Christian Living That Counts. Greetings for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled Other Loves All Flee. One Family's Journey from Legalism to Grace. And to explain that title, joining me from California is author. Leona Cohen-Nichols, welcome to the program. Thank you. Leona, this is, uh, this is a fascinating title. On the photo, photo that's on the jacket, I'm presuming that's you and your husband who look relatively conservative in your dress and so on. What, is the, <laughs> yes, what, what, yes. Is, what does the term legalism have to do with uh, your journey and your life? Well, you know what, uh, um, uh, there are uh, many, many different varieties of Christians, as you probably are aware of, and right. some are very, very conservative. Uh, the Amish are quite well-known, 
And in our community, there are the German Baptists and there are, of course, the Holderman Mennonites, of which I, my husband and I were a part of. And um, uh, so much of their faith is based upon rules. They, uh, and, of course, as you can see from the picture on my book, we had to dress a certain way. Women had to wear coverings over their heads. Uh, are on the kind of, that one isn't uh, that's the everyday covering you wore it like that for every day and then for church you wore it tied down under your chin kind of like a bandana right. and it had to be black and uh, then my husband as you can see a fairly generous beard on that picture and uh, so um, uh, the, the legalism part is all of the rules that are you are required to obey or you get called into church work which is uh, you know you uh, the ministers come out and visit you and say what's going on here you know or uh, that kind of thing uh, you cannot make your own decisions oh of course you can in you know certain unessential things but when it comes to major lifestyle issues you don't make your own decisions you follow what has been preordained by the people before you now Men- and, Men- mennonites yeah. mennonites as such uh, were an offshoot of the of the amish uh, i think is as uh, i understand history and and yet you were allowed to have uh, vehicles and and other types yes. of things that were a little more uh, yes. upscale traditional common yes. Yes, and it was so interesting is that, you know, we looked at the Amish as being legalistic, but we were free. We we had the freedom to have vehicles and all of those kind of things. And uh, uh, But, of course, uh, you needed to be careful what kind of vehicles. For instance, you never bought a car uh, that had a lot of chrome on it or that uh, was, uh, I mean, uh, yellow or red, unheard of. You know, it had to be mm. a dark color. And... Um, so, so you know, within uh, we had some freedoms that the Amish didn't have, but we also had uh, some rules that we needed to follow. Or, or, or we, what happens when you break the rules or kind of get on the, uh, kind of push the push the envelope a little bit, is uh, you know you get a visit and and uh, somebody very nicely says, well, what what are you thinking here with this kind of a car, for example? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Were, were, were the tractors also that were used, uh, were they dark colors? I mean, the, most of the tractors... No, that... no, no. It's, it's just kind of amazing. Uh, most of the uh, farm equipment, and we do live in a farming community here in Central California, um, most of the farming equipment was um, up-to-date and uh, uh, was, uh, you know, that didn't seem to apply to farm equipment. I don't hmm. know. For some reason, I guess... Uh, they thought that uh, uh, that was their livelihood, and so they needed quality equipment, I guess. But um, yeah, it, there's there's always some consistencies, uh, inconsistencies with uh, with uh, conservative people. Uh, you know, we'll say, you know, one group will say, well. Uh, we do this, but boy, we sure don't do that. Those those, <laughs> those people, I wonder what they're doing. For instance, right. we did not allow uh, photographs. I have no pictures of not a single one of my beautiful six babies. Wow. And um, and, and so that was a, that was a point of um, you know of um, oh shoot, what's the way to say it? Uh, the point of uh, of saying that we are more we are more godly. We are more uh, you know, faithful to the scriptures. Sure. And 
And uh, that particular thing was based on, you know, the commandment that says, thou shalt not make any graven images. Right. And somehow or another, that became, uh, you know, a no-no. But what's interesting is we are in a new generation, and we have the, the Holderman young people have phones that do everything. And if, if that isn't going to be an agent for change, I don't know what is. That's incredible. Now, the Holderman group is actually a more conservative uh, version of the Mennonite uh, church that is a little more mainstream. Is that the, the right yeah, way to describe yeah, sure. that? Yes, there are. They all seem to be very proud of their heritage. That's a common thing uh, uh, with uh, them. They're Anabaptist, um, and uh, that that I think they hold in common. And uh, generally speaking, you're not going to find uh, any Mennonite group that is uh, kind of uh, draws attention to themselves. They're more the quiet people of the land. But the Holdemans are the most conservative of the entire group. There is uh, some other uh, denominations, I will call them that, or religious folks that uh, have very conservative views. One that kind of came out of the woodwork a few years ago was uh, Warren Jets and, and a, uh, uh, an offshoot of the Mormon Church. Is the Holdeman group uh, have some of those characteristics? I won't say cultish, but is there a, a kind of a control factor in the Holdeman group that's not found in other churches? Definitely so. I don't know how many churches still practice uh, excommunication and avoidance, but what this does is when somebody has broken the rules or is unwilling to listen to uh, the you know the, the instructions of the ministers, they are first of all they are placed on repentance. You have some time to um, you know consider what is being asked of you and time to repent. My husband and I were on repentance for uh, 19 months, mm. which was is a long time. Uh, that's it was because we continued to follow the pattern in spite of the fact that we did refuse to deny that we had met the Lord, and so. Um, uh, but but the time will come. You can be on repentance. Usually that would be a much shorter time. But they were gracious to us. We were the parents of six children. We were in church. Uh, every time the doors opened, we were very faithful in so many of those things. So they thought that surely we would see ourselves and, and we would... Uh, we would, you know, uh, uh, repent. And um, so, uh, but excommunication is a very, very challenging thing in the Holderman Church, uh, and, and I presume anywhere it's practiced, uh, where you are now separated from your family. I remember the first time we went to a family meal uh, at, after we were excommunicated as my husband's family. And we were a large group, and I assumed that we would, uh, you know, kind of serve uh, buffet style. And um, so I had not prepared my younger children. My older children, of course, knew. So we came in, and I thought, uh-oh, there was a large table set, um, you know, already set with dishes and, and preparation. And uh, and then there was this little card table off by the side. Mm. And uh, I knew immediately. And uh, But I didn't think my kids would, would know. My two youngest kids were, I think, uh, four and seven. And um, but we sat down at this table when they directed us to, and my seven-year-old leaned over to me and she said, "Mama, why are they doing this to us?" And I I was in shock because I didn't think she'd even pick up on it. She's wow. seven, hmm. and uh, and I said, "Oh, honey," I said, um, uh, "You can see that other table is all full." 
and uh, weren't they nice to put the, put up a table so we could sit and sit down and eat? And and then I said, but Mama will talk to you about this when we get home. Wow. <laughs> and you know, I was just totally unprepared for her reaction. I didn't know that she would pick up on it. And then I think the first time we were uh, set aside was uh, we had the first wedding in our in our family. My eldest uh, niece got married, and of course we went to the wedding. And uh, of course I knew too that we would not be sitting with the family, but uh, they put us about as far away as you could get in a corner with our backs toward everybody else. Oh boy! And uh, and that was very difficult. And I'm sitting there. And the tears are kind of, you know, wanting to flow, and and uh, and I just felt the felt the heart of the Lord say, "What, Leona? I was known as a friend to sinners, and you, uh, it, it, there, it, there may be somebody at this table who needs to know about Jesus, and here you are, focusing on yourself." and And I swallowed a few times, and I started connecting with the people at the table, but we tried very hard to be understanding and forgiving. After all, we'd grown up in this culture. We knew exactly what to expect. Right. Uh, You did not lose your foundation of faith, though. You have uh, journeyed beyond that restrictive community. How did that that happen? What was the the opportunity that that caused you to look elsewhere? You know, I, I have a second book that is a sequel to Other Loves, and it's called His Grace Found Me. And one of the first chapters says, where do we go from here? And, of course, that Monday morning, after we had been told on a Sunday morning that we'd been excommunicated, the minister came over. We were all uh, almost ready for church, and, and he said, I he came over, um, I don't know, around 8.30, I guess, and and said, I need to tell you that you uh, you and your husband were excommunicated the night before, and uh, we, we look for your speedy return. We hope that you will come back soon, hmm. and we said thank you. And, um, and then we continued to get ready for church, and we went to church as we always had. But I will tell you <laughs> that a little uh, two-and-a-half or three-mile trip to our, our church uh, and of course, we were all we all looked the same as we had any other Sunday, and uh, we uh, got out of the car and went into the church, and uh, you know everything was the same, but our hearts were completely different, you know. Uh, but you know, we had met the Lord, we had had an experience in which we had felt His love and His presence in such an outstanding way. It, it's hard. I don't know that I could even explain to you, but. Uh, but as we were praying, we suddenly realized that we stood in the presence of Jesus. Uh, not that we could see him, and not that we could hear him, but he began to pour such incredible love into our hearts that we knew that we knew that we knew. And you know, before that time, I did not know there's only one first place in your heart. Did you know that? Wow. <laughs> there's only one first place in your heart. And, uh, and if it's your church, then it's not the Lord. Hmm. And so um, uh, that changed for us that day, that uh, uh, that day when we were in our in our living room praying together. And uh, so when we went to church that day, you know, we were we were polite and kind, and so was everybody else. But the but the chasm between us, chasm, I guess, between us was <clears throat> incredibly wide. And um, we continued to go to the church for about six weeks. And then one day as we were walking in, 
I felt in my heart the Lord was saying, I brought you out of that. Why do you keep going back into it? Mm. And I thought, oh, my goodness, we're really going to have to find uh, find a new way to live. And um, and then, you know, there were eight of us, six kids of us, and I, I thought, well, why can't we just have church at home? Uh-huh. Well, we tried that one Sunday or two. I don't know. That went, didn't work out too well. And then finally we began to realize we needed to find another place to fellowship. And uh, where, you know, because, of course, the, uh, one of the ultimate sins with the Holdemans is to attend another church. Mm-hmm. So we had not attended, had no clue, and we were really kind of uh, dependent on, uh, you know, on, on what was happening in our hearts and what we felt like the Lord was speaking. And, but our girls, uh, <coughs> who were teenagers at this time, uh, they came home one day and they said, you know, we went to a young people's Bible study in this home church in Merced. And I, they said, maybe you'd like to check it out. And uh, we thought, a home church? Yeah, that would be good, you know, because we uh, we would uh, actually break, break that rule about attending another church, a formal building. Right. So we, we went to this home church for about... Uh, uh, maybe about a year, and and they were very different than us. But they put their arm, they opened their arms and reached out to us in love, and um, <laughs> they were so gracious to us, so gracious to us. And uh, but after we'd gone there about a year, my daughter was now in college and was in nurses training, and uh, she could not get to her place of of employment in time. So uh, we found a little beginning church in uh, Turlock, which is just about, uh, it's about uh, 20 minutes from us to the north. And uh, they met in the American Legion Hall, which that helped too, you know. It wasn't a church building. Mm -hmm. But uh, as I look back, it was step by step by step that we made the adjustments and uh, that we felt like the Lord was leading us in our lives. We knew that it was important to fellowship with other believers. We just didn't know what believers, because we had taught that they were all in error. Now, you've written 171 pages. There's more in here than just that particular story of your of your yes. life journey. You have photo, uh-huh. photos of the family and uh, have, yes. have followed it through. What was the purpose in writing the book? What do you think readers will get from this, besides the history of the Holdeman Church. Yeah, well, um, of course, as as uh, committed believers, we would like to uh, also show that uh, God doesn't abandon us; He walks with us. When we go through hard things, He walks with us, and uh, and step by step, you know, well, uh, situations would come up, and we thought, "Oh my goodness, what are we going to do?" And uh, of course, prayer is the avenue that all Christians have to talk to the God, the creator of the universe, and and we would pray, and uh, something would happen. God would open a door. God would uh, lead us in a certain direction, and we never felt abandoned. We never felt like he had turned his back on us, because we knew uh, that we were walking in faith. We're, we're saying, Lord, you know, what do you, how do you want me to live? Who do you want me to connect with? All of these kind of things, and that happened. And uh, our children grew up, and um, they most of them went to college. Uh, three have degrees, and the other three didn't complete. But our youngest son became a pastor, and he is a pastor in the local church that we attend right now. Beautiful. 
So, yeah. That's a beautiful story. And, and again, even if they are non-church-going, non-believers, this book really would be of interest to them just to for the historical content, uh, plus the uh, personal stories that you have, have shared in your book. The title, again, is Other Loves All Flee. One Family's Journey from Legalism to Grace. My guest has been Leona Cohen-Nichols. Leona, my listeners need to get a copy of this. How would they do so? Well, of course, it's on Amazon.com and uh, and also the uh, the publishing house that I use for that book is called Author House, and I think they also, and Barnes & Nobles, I guess, carry everything. They don't always have them on their shelves, but uh, they can order them for you. And, you know, I, I do realize that in some ways, uh, it, you know, unless you're interested in uh, in a spiritual journey, uh, it may not, uh, you know, be for you, but most people do realize that <laughs> that we're here on this earth for a purpose, and we all want to fulfill that purpose. And uh, for us, you know, it was raising our families uh, in a godly way, and uh, we we have wonderful children. We have six wonderful children, twenty grandchildren. Now we're into great grands, and wow. um, and it, we have it, it, we have been so privileged. It is so incredible. We've taken trips. We have, uh, you know, done a lot of things that we had we could not have done otherwise. And uh, you know, I have continued to study and to grow and and. Um, and to write, <laughs> you know, I also have a, a poetry book called uh, Quiet Things, Quiet Places. And uh, then this uh, latest book that I published is called His Grace Found Me, because there were several couples who said, we want to tell our stories, too. And so there are five families who tell their stories in this in this sequel to Other Loves. But Other Loves is our basic book. And, and of course, what I mean by that title is when uh, when Jesus is first in your life, you have other loves also, but they are not um, they are not your focus. You know, we have a farm. We love being farmers. <laughs> um, by the way, you know, when I went back to when I started college at age forty nine, I graduated when I was fifty three, and got my first teaching job. Mm. And I taught in the public schools. Uh, I'm an English English teacher. And I taught there for um, about 11 years full-time, and then we wanted to do some traveling. So then I went part-time and um, uh, did long-term subs and summer school and things. And then at the very end, I went to, and taught in a private school, Turlock Christian High School. And all of those were wonderful experiences for me. I, I am a natural-born teacher. Um, when I was in first grade, I came home, uh, you know, and told my mom, Mom, I know what I want to be when I grow up. I want to be a teacher. And she smiled. <laughs> and um, and I was, then I got to the fourth grade before I realized I never could be because I wouldn't be allowed to get an education. Your story comes through as a, as a teacher in your book, All Other Loves All Flee. And obviously uh-huh. you are a person that has a lot of joy in your life. So I appreciate your sharing that with my audience today and for sharing your story. I would recommend this group, this book, listeners. You can find it probably just under the first and last name, Leona, last name N-I-C-H-O-L-S, if you're looking for this book and others that she has penned. Thank you for joining me today and sharing your story. Oh, it's my privilege. Thank you for being interested. <laughs> uh, honored to visit with you. For Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker. 
Stay with us for more Christian Living That Counts, back in a moment. It's merging Believe it or not, there are times when even I can't think of the right word. The inability to think of a word is called lethologica. Texas Monthly Magazine recently came out with some colorful homespun sayings. Old as dirt and common as cornbread in the Lone Star State. Did you hear about the Texan that could strut sitting down? But he was all hat and no cattle, which means very boastful, but with nothing about which to boast. On top of that, he don't know a widget from a wangdoodle or a diddly squat. His wife was a mighty strong woman. She'd charge hell with a bucket of ice water. She was always telling folks that he was so tight, he could squeeze a nickel till the buffalo screamed. She also said he was famous for calling the hogs all night or snoring. It's I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my new app, Too Funny for Words. Returning with more of Christian Living That Counts. Greetings for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled, The Boy Who Gave His Lunch. And joining me from near Houston, Texas, in the United States of America, is author... Regina Davis. Thank you for joining me today, Regina. Oh, thank you for having me, Jay. Honored to visit with you. Your book uh, appears to be a book that's been written for children. Would that be a good description? Oh, yes. That's exactly who I would target it. And why children? Uh, you, have you been a storyteller? Do you work with children? What is the uh, significance of the title? Well, the reason I decided to write a children's book is because my granddaughter was born. Up until then, I, I'm a chemist by training but and, and by career until I retired a few years ago. But I always wanted to write a book because I love books. But then after my granddaughter was born, my focus kind of changed, and all of a sudden, for the first time, I wanted to write something for children, and I wanted to write something that would help her come to know Jesus the way that I do and to love him. And so that's, that's why I ended up writing a children's book about Jesus. So this is an extension of your personal faith and also one that you wanted to share with your granddaughter and other children. The significance of the story, the boy who gave his lunch. Now, some would uh, would criticize the story as being anecdotal and maybe a fantasy story that was just made up. What do you share in your story, that, and why did you particularly choose this one? Well... Like I said, I wanted to write something for my granddaughter, so I thought it really needed to be something from a child's point of view. And as I was thinking about that, this idea came to write the one about the little boy who gave his lunch so, so that Jesus could feed over 5,000 people. And this, and, is, uh, this is one of the miracles of the New Testament that a lot of preachers will get in the pulpit and talk about. Uh, what, what, uh, what drew you to it, other than the fact that a child was involved? Well, it's... It's just a, a chance to look at a life or a day in the life of Jesus and this child and how they interacted and, and how the child was affected. And it gave me an opportunity to, to also talk about kind of a, a summary of Jesus' ministry. But uh, I'd been thinking about writing something around that, and then one night just in the middle of the night I woke up and just thought, you know, I need to write this book and I need to write it from a little boy's perspective, and I just went in the study and started writing, and that one night, most of the story just fell into place. I tweaked it a little bit after that, but, but the, the main part of it, I wrote that one night, and I really just felt like the Lord put that on my heart to do that. 
a very well-known story of the miracles of Christ in the New Testament. This one particularly is outstanding because a child was involved, obviously, is one of the reasons that you selected it. Was there any research had to be done? I know this is a common story, or was it just something that flowed from your creative side? Mostly it just flowed. I mean, I did go back after after I wrote it. Then I went back to the—it's mentioned in all four Gospels, and so I went back to those passages and went through them and, and tried to make sure that I had covered what, you know, the facts of the story. And, of course, there's a lot of addition to it where I tried to, to bring it to life. And so there's a lot of fiction to it from that perspective. But the, the basic facts are taken straight from the Gospels, or even list the Gospel references at the end of the book so that parents can go, and children can too, look them up and see what the Bible actually says about what happened. Any personal discoveries as you were researching the the background and kind of refreshing your personal understanding of the story? Yes, it it just gave me a different perspective as I was going through it and trying to to see it the way the little boy would have and how that day would have felt. So much of it, I think we just kind of gloss over it. This is big miracle, but we don't think about all the pieces that were going on that day, how Jesus was teaching and how he was healing all these people before he ever fed them. And so it just gave me that that little bit different perspective than I'd ever looked at it before. Do you think there are any other books in the marketplace that have uh, approached the story the same way you have, or is there something unique in the way you have uh, have done this? I think my approach is a little unique. Uh, I think because I emphasized more Jesus' love for the people that he was teaching and healing, for the love that he showed this little boy and how he just reached his heart. And that was kind of my focus, and I don't think that's often what we focus on with this story. I think we tend to focus on the miracle and miss the the bigger miracle of Jesus' love for each person. Uh, this is 30 pages in in length, so it obviously is targeted, I say obviously, but I would think it would be targeted towards the younger child. Is that a, a right evaluation of, of what you've done? Yes, yes. Um, first and second and third graders, that, that age group right there, probably get the most out of it. The, it's just beautifully illustrated. Uh, the man who did the illustrations did an awesome job on it. And so the pictures are beautiful, and younger children love looking at the pictures and, and enjoy the story, too. But it, it really fits more with the first through third graders, I think. What is the maybe the one thing that's outstanding about this story that you think a reader is going to focus on or get the most out of? Is there something there that you have created that when when I read it or when I read it to my grandchildren or my child, I will walk away and say, well, I didn't thought of it that way. What is the what is the focus? Well, I think again, Jesus' love. I think that's what I want people to walk away with is how much Jesus loves each individual person and how that love just flowed out of him and, and still does. But in the story, as the little boy is is talking to Jesus and is giving him his lunch, he says, you know, he, he loved I could just feel his love like he was giving me a hug. And I think that's what I want people to get from this story, and I think that's what's different about it, is the focus on how much Jesus loves us. One of the things that you have done from a creative standpoint and from a obviously fictional standpoint is the conversation between the child and his mom. Uh, he's on his way to the picnic or the celebration or the teaching 
uh, that's going to take place with Christ. And uh, his mom says, hey, you need to take a lunch, maybe a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or something with you. And what is that conversation uh, that he has with her? Oh, he, uh, first he comes and he asks her, you know, if he can go. And she's, well, I can't take you. We've got this, I have this family. I have this baby. We can't go. And he says, that's okay. My my friend and his dad are going, I can go with them. And that's when she says, well, okay, but you have to take a lunch. And and he doesn't want to. And uh, I think a lot of that is like most of us are. Things come along in life and we have to do something and it's not what we want to do. And he was going to be embarrassed because nobody else was taking a lunch. And that's what he told her, I'll be the only one. But God used that. You know, if he hadn't taken the lunch... He would have never had an opportunity to speak to Jesus, and he wouldn't have been part of that miracle. And so I think that 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 happens in our lives, too. There are times that things happen that we don't understand, and we think this is bad, and then it turns out to be the most awesome opportunity that we've ever had. And that's what happened with him. I think that's a great message for children to to pick up on, and you have subtly introduced that. Uh, there was a song years ago that I recall uh, the title of. It said, Little as much when God is in it, then this is what happens to his peanut butter. Well, it wasn't peanut butter and jelly sandwich, but, you know, contemporarily that's what I would describe it as. It was uh, loaves and fishes. But uh, that is a, an important message you're sharing with the children. Yes, I think so, too. What sets it apart from the crowd? There's five loaves, two fishes, and that's amazing, and 5,000 people. That in itself is uh, something that should cause the child who reads this to open his eyes. What is he going to take away from this? I think he's going to take away the fact that, that Jesus is God's son. Only God could do this kind of a miracle. And and the day started out with miracles, with Jesus healing people, and, and in there I give some some illustrations of healings that Jesus did with, you know, about healing people so they can walk and so that, you know, fevers go away and those kinds of things. So I think it will help children to to see that Jesus truly was God's son, that he had a power and still has that power that no human being would ever be able to have. So I think that's one of the main things they will learn about Jesus and the other, and of course, how much he loves them, because that just came through in everything that Jesus did, that he loved people so much that, and as we know, then later on he was willing to die for us to pay for our sins. The other thing it does do is, is kind of introduce that the fact that we need someone to pay for our sins, because while I didn't, that's, the crucifixion isn't part of the story, but the fact that we are sinners is, and I think that kind of comes through when the little boy goes up to talk to Jesus and all of a sudden he's kind of scared. It's like us, a lot of times when we approach the Lord, we realize that we are sinners, that we have done things that are not right, and that we haven't lived up to what His standards are for us, and and that we need forgiveness. And so that comes through in the story, too, and that Jesus is the source of that forgiveness. I've read in your bio that you are a storyteller by nature and have uh, been anxious to maybe share something in print. This is your first book. Were there challenges in getting this completed and getting it to press? Oh, yes. It was It was much easier to write it than it was to get it to press. And uh, I had, since I'd never written a book, I really didn't have any idea where to even start. But I had two friends uh, that I had worked with that have gone on to write books, and uh, both of them gave me some good advice and and that's how I ended up with Author House, was they kind of steered me in that direction, and they were able to get my book 
get me together with a, an illustrator to do these beautiful pictures and to get it published, and they've, they've been a, a great help. What's the future? Another book? Another story? What do you feel the future I'm hoping, holds? Yeah. I'm hoping to write another book. I've enjoyed doing this one, and and I, I really hope to write another one. I'm kind of started on one about Jesus' birth, but it's got a long ways to go before it's ready to publish. Well, congratulations on completing this one. I'm assuming that you've been able to share this with grandparents or someone in your close community that has read it and given you feedback. Has it been uh, as encouraging as you had hoped for? Yes, it has. That's been um, such a blessing. The people that I know that have purchased the book have come back to me and say how much they've enjoyed it, how much their grandkids have enjoyed it, or their children have enjoyed it. And uh, and that's been such a blessing because that's what I was hoping, that it would give people a, a different view of this miracle and, and just a a realization of how much Jesus loves each one of us. What's beautifully done, the illustrations, as you have mentioned, are a, a spectacular. Uh, the, to- the title of the book, again, is The Boy Who Gave His Lunch, and my author, Regina Davis. Regina, where can my listeners get a copy of this? Do you have a website and uh, some other suggestions? Yes, I do have a website. You can also get it through Author House, and it's carried by Barnes & Noble and Amazon as well. Fabulous. And the, where, where is your website located? How do they reach you there? ReginaDavis.com. Pretty simple, straightforward. Regina, thank yes. you for joining me today and sharing your story. Uh, hopefully, we'll get to hear from you in the future, and you'll become a number one selling best author in the children's Christian author area. Regina, thank you again for joining me today and sharing your story about your first book, The Boy Who Gave His Lunch. Well, thank you so much for having me. Honored to visit with you. For Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Join us again for Christian Living That Counts.